I want to, I don't want to start the year off with bad news, but, uh, I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but we in Middle Tennessee are in the midst of a drought. Do you know that? You know, there was a time not too long ago when everyone would have known that because farms depending so much, we depended so much on the rain, but I actually have a drought map, which is exactly what you wanted to see when you walked in to church this morning. And one of the things that you can see is that there is this wave that is, um, we, we, by the way, we're, we're not as bad as some people. We're on the border of severe and extreme. All right. There are some people to our South that are exceptional. That doesn't mean great or awesome. That means bad. Right. And, and this is the drought map. Now, the good news is it's supposed to rain like eight and a half inches this week. No, not really. It's like two inches are coming this week to help with that. But I, I thought about that this week because I was reading an article online about the drought that happened in the 1930s in the Midwest. In the 1930s in the Midwest, there was a drought that lasted for a decade where every year for over a decade, it rained less than the average in those states. And four of the seven worst years on record in those states happened within about a seven-year period. And it led to iconic images because people were desperate for rain and for food. And so perhaps the most famous image that came from that time is this picture of, we have the picture of the woman. This picture that I actually saw this past summer in the Library of Congress. It's this woman and her kids and they're desperate because it will not rain. For 10 years, they had drought in the 1930s. And here's the thing. It was so dry, it led to storms. Not any kind of normal storms. Obviously, it didn't rain because that would alleviate the drought. It led to dust storms. Because they had settled there in the previous years, they had not done good practices in farming. The soil, the topsoil especially, was really loose. The winds would whip through the Midwest. It was dry because of the lack of rain. And storms would envelop towns and communities. This is a picture of, obviously, a truck running away from the storm. The next picture is a picture of somewhere in Texas that has the storm approaching in 1935. And you can see, I mean, those are... Those are massive buildings, barns, that are being just overtaken by the dust. It was a unique phenomenon that it was so dry that storms wiped out areas of the dryness. So here's my question for you today. If we were to make a spiritual life drought map for your life, what would it look like? If we were to make a map, if, if the National Weather Service were to make a map of your spiritual life, what would it look like? Would there be, maybe it's like, man, it's all clear. It's great. It's awesome. Everything's going wonderful. Or at least it has been for the last seven days because I started a brand new Bible study and praying every day. It's like the gym workout for spiritual life. Or maybe you're like, man, I'm in that severe extreme, and there are areas in my life that are exceptionally dry. One of the things that's fascinated me about 
the dust bowl and the things that happened in that time is that part of the problem was that when the drought came, they had done so much other stuff to the land. There had been so much busyness on the land that it prevented them from recognizing the issues they were causing. And part of my concern for those of us that live here and now, which is all of us, is our lives are so full of doing and being and having stuff that when the spiritual dry moments happen in our lives, we do not realize the damage we've already done and the storms that hit us are disastrous. I told you last week that the Lord has given me the word renewal for this year for our church. And part of what I've asked the Lord is, what would a spiritual drought map look like for our church? Where are the areas in the life of our church where we are spiritually dry or in a drought, extreme, severe, or whatever? And the Lord has impressed upon me over the next few weeks, over this month of January, that we're going to talk about renewal. We're going to talk about revival. We're going to talk about helping to find and cultivate our lives. It's interesting that in Scripture, oftentimes, it talks about our lives like a garden. It it talks in these agricultural terms for us. In fact, in the time and the date of the Hebrews, they would often refer to their spiritual life, their community life, their national life, as if it was an agricultural product that they were tending. For instance, in the book of Hosea, one of my absolute favorite books of the entire Bible, a a, a book that is fascinating because of the way it starts, and the command of the Lord to Hosea to go and find a woman of ill repute, it's the nice way to say it in mixed company of ages, right? And to marry her, and that was his mission, was to marry her. But in the midst of that, in Hosea chapter 6, he says, come, let us. Return to the Lord, for He has torn us and He will heal us. He will renew us, for He has wounded us. He will bind up our wounds. He will renew us. He will revive us after two days and on the third day. Isn't that interesting? On the third day? Think that's foreshadowing anything coming? He will raise us up so we can live in His presence on the third day. Jesus was risen so that we could live in the presence of the Lord. All of God's people said... Amen. Let's strive to know the Lord. I love that word. It means to work with everything we've got. Let's go after it. Let's pursue it. Let's work at going after the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come if we seek Him to us, he says, like the rain. Like the spring showers that water the land. The word there for showers is literally like a deluge or a downpour. Now, when I was praying this week, when I was thinking this week, when I was thinking about what was going to happen here today and about all that was happening, all I could think about was an old phrase that I heard years ago is, Lord, we are in need of a downpour. And as a church and as an individual, this is confessional time for me as your pastor, I'm in need of a downpour of the grace and the mercy and the knowledge and the goodness of God. And without it then we are tediously working for nothing. 
Our verse for the year is Psalm 127.1 that says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about renewing our relationship with the Lord. That's today. Renewing our relationship with other people. Renewing our focus and renewing our purpose. And to be honest with you, all of them could have the same outline, and they might, of the one we have today. Because it's all the same process. It just works itself out in different ways. And so today what I want to do, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to look at a very familiar verse, but we're not going to get there for a while. Because I want to set the background up of what's coming in Second Chronicles 6 and in Second Chronicles 7 for a verse that I can almost guarantee every one of you in this room have heard and know. But we often say it out of context. We say it without understanding what's happening. We say it without the impetus behind it that we need. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of where we are in 2 Chronicles. Did I say Corinthians? I may do that multiple times. We're in the Old Testament. Stay in the Old Testament. We're not going back and forth. 2 Chronicles, right? 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We are in the history of Israel. The nation is together. It is not yet divided. The king is Solomon, David's son. And Solomon in chapter 6 is finishing or has finished the build of the temple of God. Now if you remember, David wanted to build the temple, but why didn't he build the temple? God wouldn't let him, right? So he was a man of blood, a man of war because of the sin that he committed with Uriah and the other things, the battles he had fought. God says, you're not going to build my house, but your son will build my house. And so Solomon built a temple unto the Lord that was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And the day came to say, "Okay, it's now open for business. This is the ribbon cutting ceremony for the temple. Okay, except it's going to be a little more. Special than just a big pair of scissors and a red ribbon. And so what happens is in verse 12 of chapter 6 is Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. He had built an altar outside the outside for them to see as they were getting ready to come in. And he stood on it. And this is the biblical um, justification for lifting your hands. He lifts his hands to the Lord. For Solomon had made a bronze platform seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high. He put it in the court. He stood on it. And then he knelt down in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread his hands toward heaven. So he gets there first and he spreads it out. And then he gets on his knees and he spreads it up. And he says this prayer. We're not going to read the entire prayer. You've got it before you can go back and read it. We're going to read sections of the prayer. He says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you, all of God's people said, in heaven or in earth, who keeps his gracious covenant with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. There's no one like you, God. He then goes on to say this. You've done what you promised. To your servant, my dad, David. You spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. So you told him that you were going to allow a place to be built where people could come and worship you. You told him his son would be on the throne. And though there has been some dispute, and even there was some dispute in the transition that has happened, you have kept your promise to my dad. Verse 16. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, 
Keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You were never failed to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take care to walk in my law as you have walked before me. So Solomon begins by saying, God, this is your place. You promised us you would bring it about. You have fulfilled your your promise. You have done what you have said. And Lord, we give thanks to you for that. Then remember your promise to my dad. Jump down to verse 19. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you, so that your eyes watch over this temple day and night toward the place where you said you would put your name, and so that you may hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petitions of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. He says, Lord, this is your place. We built it. It was a promise to my dad. You promised him that he would have a son that would build this. You have kept your promise. This is here. It is magnificent. But Lord, we pray that as we come to this place and as we turn our attention toward this place, as we gather here, that you would hear us, that the prayers that are uttered in this place would be heard. And then skip all the way down to verse 40. Now, my God. Please let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. Now, therefore, arise, Lord God, come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests, Lord God, be not clothed with salvation and may your faithful people rejoice in all goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember your servant David's acts of faithful love. So Solomon On this day, when they are opening up the temple for people to come in and worship, he gives thanks to the Lord. He praises God for his strength and his might. You see that throughout this prayer. In fact, over and over again in this prayer, he then says, Lord, because you are a great God, because you are a holy God, because you are a faithful God, when we come to this place and we've been conquered by a foreign enemy, Lord, hear our prayers. In fact, when we are in a distant land and we are praying back towards you, towards our God, would you listen and listen to our prayers and give heedance to our cries? He says to him, Lord, when we sin, and then he says, and we all are going to sin, Lord, when we sin and we come and we ask forgiveness, Lord, would you hear us? And then he gets to the end and he says, Lord, this is your place. Don't forget your promise. May you be glorified in it. Now, here's what I want to tell you about this particular moment. We know the end of the story. Solomon did not. He had put all this effort, he had put all this work, he had put all these things into place. He felt like he was fulfilling the call of God on his dad's life. He felt like this was the call that had come to him. He felt like this was the place that God intended. This is what God wanted. This is what God was looking for. But he was not assured in that moment until he laid it before the Lord to hear the Lord's response to what he had done. And my guess is, in that moment, as he is praying, it is a humble act. We know that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the language of the prayer is filled with humility, of God's sovereignty, of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness, of this is God. Solomon had just led a group of people to build one of the wonders of the ancient world. And yet not once in there do you hear Solomon say, Lord, look at what we have done for you. How awesome is what we've done for you? Everything is, Lord, this is yours. This is what you wanted. This is what you gave us. This is what you did. Give thanks to the Lord for that. And then he gets on his knees in front of his people, the king of 
Israel gets on his knees in front of his people, spreads out his arms to heaven in surrender and submission to the Lord and begins to pray. Now, I want to tell you that I I know that we live in a different kind of of, of governmental system. We don't live in a kingship system or in a theocracy kind of system where God is considered the king and that Solomon would be considered his under-shepherd, the king under him. But can you imagine the visual if... On inauguration day, with the hundreds of thousands, whoever is standing there in this time next year. And we can talk about that for the year, about how much prayer needs to go into whatever's going to happen in the next year. Okay? Whoever is standing there around this time next year were to walk in front of that podium, were to get down on their knees, first of all, break all decorum, lift their hands to heaven, and begin to pray to the Lord God Almighty. Again, it's a different system, but you see the humility in the act. And he waits on the Lord. Now here's the good thing, you didn't have to wait long. Chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Solomon had put all kinds of, I mean, it's amazing how much he put out there. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest We're not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Do you think Solomon got his answer there? They couldn't go in the door. Because God's glory was so evident there. Remember, Moses was like, God's like, if I, if you see me, you'll die. And he's like, just let me see the backside. Let me just get a glimpse. This is what's happening. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, the manifest presence of God has filled this place. And all the Israelites were watching when the fire descended and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bound on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshipped and praised the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. The king and all of the people were offering sacrifices in the Lord's presence. Here's more. Solomon brings more sacrifice. 20,000 cattle. That's a lot of ribeyes. Right? 120,000 sheep and goats. In this manner, the king and all the people dedicated God's temple. The priests and the Levites were standing at their stations. The Levites had the musical instruments of the Lord, which King David had made to give thanks to the Lord, for his faithful love endures forever when he offered praise with them. Across from the Levites, who were playing these instruments loudly, that are joyfully playing and singing and celebrating and worshiping together, across from them, the priests were all blowing their trumpets. I've been in this room when one trumpet is blown. Can you imagine a line of trumpets blaring at the top of what they could? Because I can guarantee you they were not playing softly. And since the bronze altar that Solomon had made could not accommodate the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fat of the fellowship offering, Solomon first consecrated the middle of the courtyard that was in front of the Lord's temple and then offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings there. Verse 8. So Solomon and all Israel with him, a very great assembly 
from the entrance of Amath to the brook of Egypt, observed the festival at that time. They celebrated and worshipped and sang and danced and ate for seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people home, rejoicing and with happy hearts for the goodness the Lord had done for David, for Solomon and his people Israel. So Solomon finished the Lord's temple and the royal palace. Everything that had entered Solomon's heart to do for the Lord's temple and for his own palace succeeded. I've been to some awesome camps. I've been to some awesome events where we worshipped the Lord. I had never been to anything like this. Our youth next weekend, by the way, we're going to have how many, how many, around 60, around 60 of our youth and Chaperones are going to Strength to Stand Conference in Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge area. They're going to hear some awesome speakers. They're going to have an awesome weekend. And, man, we love sending our youth, sending our kids, adults going to those kind of events. Right now happening in Atlanta, Georgia is passion. Passion is a movement of God that I was fortunate to be the very first one in 1997 that has seen thousands of people sent out for the glory of God. And some of the most meaningful worship experiences I've ever had happened in passion conferences, but I had never been a part of something like that. They couldn't get in the door. For seven days they celebrated. And when they leave that place, I know what Solomon is thinking because it's the same thing that I would be thinking as I walked out of there impartial. And I'd be celebrating the Lord, glad for the Lord, giving glory and honor to His name. But part of me would be like, now, now what do we do? Can't top that. Can't do better than that. Can't do better than Shana manifest glory of God preventing us from getting in the temple and every person in the nation with their face on the ground singing praises to the Lord our God. And you and I may not have had that high of an experience, but my guess is that all of us at some point in our lives can look back on a mountaintop experience, a moment with the Lord, a season with the Lord, some time with the Lord when it didn't feel like a drought at all, that it was fresh and like living water and garden. That description is exactly what's there. It was good. And there are moments in our lives when that fades, when that goes. And we think, what now? What now? Verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I love this, because it's almost like, in case you didn't get the memo, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place as my temple of sacrifice. Just in case the last seven days didn't get to you, you did good. That's what we wanted. I've chosen this place. And then in verse 13 and 14, he gives him what to do when things aren't so good. If I shut up the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, the point he's making there is in your dry seasons, in your droughts. If my people who bear my name Humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, 
and heal their land. Solomon had asked in that prayer in chapter 16, Lord, if, if, if we sin and we come back to you and we say we're sorry, would you forgive us? And God says, I will, but it's a little more than that. It's a little more than just, hey, hey God, I'm sorry. Hey, can you make everything right again? And we have an awesome, gracious, holy, mighty, loving God. But God says, if you get off track, if you're in a spiritual drought, if that map of your life looks like extreme drought in several areas, if in that moment you will humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And I'll restore you. You want to know the truth? I said that the outline for the rest of this series could be the same outline every time. The truth is, the outline for every sermon that I preach on any Sunday could be this outline. Because what does it mean to return to the Lord? What does it mean to renew our relationship with the Lord? What well, takes four things, and the first one is to humble ourselves. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates. There are seven things that are abominations to the Lord. Anybody want to guess what number one on that list is? Anybody want to guess? It's pride. Pride. In fact, you can trace almost every sin that we have in some way back to pride. Because we are all about us. We have never had a more selfish society and we are concerned with what we want and we have and we are and pride creeps into our lives and what prevents the Lord from moving in more lives and more churches than almost anything else we can talk about is the pride that the people have. We've talked about it many times before. One of those influential books uh, on my life is The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And the first line in it particularly that says, it's not about you. This book is not about you. Your life is not about you. Your purpose is not about you. Your family is not about you. Your wealth is not about you. Your career is not about you. Nothing in this life is about you. You are not the main character of your life. We sang Heart of Worship today. I love that song. It's from the late 90s. I mentioned being at the First Passion. It grew out of a movement that grew out of that, that spread over into England, that were kind of at the same time. It is written by a guy named Matt Redman. Matt Redman went to a church called All Souls Church that was one of the leaders in this new modern worship movement. And at some point, as a leader in the modern worship movement, the pastor began to worry that they were becoming known more for their modern worship movement than they were for the Lord. And so he made a bold decision at the leading church in England for worship music of that day. He made the decision that they would not have music in their worship service. For a season of time, he said, we've become too focused on other things, we're going to strip all of that away. And when we walk in the service, we're not going to have anything that day but what you bring as an offering to the Lord and the message that God has laid on my heart. And they did that for months. And Matt Redman has talked about how frustrating that was at times as being, that's his giftedness, that's what it's about. But he said in the midst of that, what he began to realize is that he had focused so much on his artistry and his craft and the making of the music that he had forgotten the one for whom the music was about. 
And when they brought everybody back, the first song they sang was the heart of worship. When the music fades and all is stripped away and it simply comes. Longing just to bring something that's of worth more than a song. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. We live in a world where arguments and conflicts arise out of our pride that wants to make it about us. And in order for us to see God move in our lives and in our church, we have to lose the right to be right all the time. It's not about us. It's not about being right. It's not about our agenda. It's not about our program. It's not about who we are. It's not about being right. Uh, uh, Adrian Rogers in a sermon on humility once said that the problem is everyone in church is trying to save face when that ought to be the thing that we lose. Because it's not about us. James chapter 4 verse 6 says God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And so in this moment, and here's the thing, humility is a hard thing because once you think you've got it, you've lost it. It, it, It's a hard, it's not so much we think, man, I've got to humble myself, I've got to humble myself. It's just acting to say, God, this is you. And, And listen, you can ask God to humble you, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. It's dangerous. Because God will use means and methods that you may not want or like. But it's okay to say it to the Lord because what you're saying is, God, I want to be made less and you made more. It's John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. What does it take for revival to happen as a church? First of all, it happens when people in the church, individuals begin to say, it's not about me or my agenda or my thoughts or my desires. Lord, it's about you. It's not about us or the name on the front of the church. It's not about the history or the prestige. It's about you. Second thing is, not only we humble ourselves, but we pray. Intensely seeking the Lord in prayer. Conversations with the Lord. Laying it all out. In humility, they work together, laying it all out before the Lord and saying, this is what's on my heart. This is what's on my mind. And realizing in the midst of that, it's an opportunity for us to turn over our selfish desires and say, Lord, I need this in my life, but I'm turning it over to you and trusting you to do whatever with it. This has been keeping me up at night, Lord, but I can't do anything about it. And even if I try to do something about it, it's not as good as if you take care of it. So, Lord, I'm trusting you with it. We humble ourselves, we pray, we seek His face. In fact, you can put those two together. Pray and seek are kind of the same thing. They're working together. It's not just any sort of prayer. It's not just a prayer of a litany of things that are going on. It is a directed prayer of, God, I need you. God, I want you. I want to be in your presence. I want to live by your strength. God, I need you and you alone. Unless you build my life, unless you build our church, unless you build your kingdom, then we labor in vain. Lord, we need you. As the deer panteth for the water, Lord, so my soul, my soul longs after you. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait for you, for your name and your 
glory, your glory, your name are the desires of our soul. How much do you desire or want the Lord? The problem in my life, just telling you, that one of the things I've noticed in my life is that when spiritual dry spells begin to occur, I often look for the solution in things other than the one that can quench the drought. I try to fill my life with distractions or busyness or other things than filling it with the one who is living water that could end the drought immediately. Seek the Lord. Spend time soaking in His Word. Spend time soaking in His presence. One of the commitments I made again this year is that I was going to to try to go through the entire Bible in a year. And I don't do that every year. Uh, I don't want it to be kind of a thing where I feel forced or check it off the list. But um, I told a Sunday school class this morning, one of the way that I'm doing it this year is a little different. I would suggest if you have a commute or anything like this, this could be helpful. Maybe or may, it may not be. But um, a group called Crossway has put out podcasts that release every day. And one of my favorite preachers in the world is a guy named Robert Smith, who was a professor at Beeson for years. And he is reading through the Bible chronologically this year. I mean, it's just different when I get in and instead of having the news on or music on, that I've got the Word of God playing. And I may not be faithful 365 days a year this year, but I know that my life is better when I have that as a part of it all the time. Seek the Lord. We humble ourselves. We pray. We seek the Lord. And then the last, and then we're done. We turn. Turn from their wicked ways. The New Testament word for this is repentance. It means a change of mind, a change of attitude. What what it means is literally going one direction and turning around and going the other. It's the redirecting call of your GPS system when you make a wrong turn, right? Repentance in Scripture is very specific about what it is and what it's not. And sometimes we get confused by it because what Scripture teaches us is repentance is not just conviction that we've done something wrong. Repentance isn't even just confessing that we've done something wrong. Repentance isn't just being sorry about doing something wrong. Repentance is not just conviction, man, I can't believe that I did that, or confession, Lord, I did that, or contrition, feeling bad about doing it. Repentance is more than that. Repentance is a recognition that what you have done is against the Lord. And it involves a change of your heart. It involves a new direction of your life. And it involves continual growth in following Him. It's more than just, Lord, I've done something bad. Here it is. It's, and now I want to walk in the completely the opposite way to honor you. And scripture makes it clear why we need to turn. First of all, uh, sin is bad. That's like first grade Christianese, right? Sin is bad. God is good and grace is available. And so when we find ourselves in a place, Psalm 51 read earlier, 
One of the things that we have to realize is that before we even talk about it, and listen, I said that all these could apply to different areas, but today I want you to think about your relationship with the Lord, that spiritual drought mount with the Lord, and think, where is it that I need to turn back to Him? Because no matter what's going on, there may be people in your life, and we can talk about this next week, or you may get there this week while you're there, there may be people in your life you need to confess to, and you need to repent with, that you need to talk about, you need to reconcile with. There may need to be some of that within the church, within the community, within your family. But first we have to realize that our sin first and foremost is not against other people first and foremost it is against the lord against you and who you alone have i sinned is what david said and as we work through this we realize that we will never be connected to other people in the way that we should we will never be connected in our minds like we should we will never be connected to our purpose like we should if we're not reconnected with the lord And I don't mean that your relationship has been severed. I just mean that you and I know that there can be moments in our lives when we have done things or walked places or chosen things that lead us to a place where our relationship with Him is not as fruitful, it is not as fresh as it could be. And when that happens, we humble ourselves, we pray, we seek His face, and we turn. What's your spiritual drought mount look like? What are the areas that you need to reconnect with the Lord as we begin this 2024 together in a year of renewal? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a faithful and good and holy and great and loving and merciful and gracious God. And you always keep your promises. And we stand here today and declare in this place that you alone are worthy of all praise and glory and adoration. And Lord, we get in the way so many times. We get in the way of our own lives. We get in the way of our church. We get in the way of your kingdom. And Lord, we repent of that. We pray, Lord, that you'll show us where to turn in the midst of that. Lord, we come to you knowing you are the solution and we seek you Lord we need you without you we are doing meaningless work here and Lord we pray that you would search us and know us that you would show us those things in our lives that are offensive and that you would lead us in the everlasting way you would show us where we need to turn Lord you would show us where we need to repent And come back. And Lord, that you would give us the strength that we can't muster ourselves to do exactly that. We pray more than anything, Lord, that you would build your kingdom. That souls would be saved and lives would be changed because of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.